What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, ExxonMobil's huge deal to buy rival Pioneer. Both CEOs join us in their first interview since merging to form the biggest producer in the largest U.S. oil field. Pioneer CEO Scott Sheffield. This is the best company uh, to take 100% stock um, in the world, in my opinion. What Darren has done with this company over the last um, few years and turning it around, they've outperformed all the majors across all indexes. And Exxon's CEO Darren Woods says it's a big deal for a big industry that isn't going anywhere. Fossil fuels, oil and gas are going to continue to play a role over time. That may may diminish with time, but it will be around for a long time. And as the Israel-Hamas war continues, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, is urging corporate America to speak up. CEOs want to talk about, you know, EPS, if you will, right, not ESG. I I understand that impulse, too. But there are some issues that are political and that are some that are just moral. Those conversations, plus Congress, still leaderless, and Ozempic finds more success. If it's like antibiotics, fantastic. That is a a miracle that all of us have been so fortunate to have in our lives. It's just you look through it and it's like, let's hope it's not FinFin. It's Wednesday, October 11th. 2023 and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe. Well, Joe's not here today. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross and We are here today. Joe's uh, out for the next several days. We have been taking a look at what's been happening. Bloody hands of the terrorist organization Hamas group whose stated purpose for being is to kill Jews. This is an act of sheer evil. The Israel-Hamas war rages on in the Middle East. The death toll is well over 2,000 in the fifth day of the conflict, including over 1,000 Israelis and over 1,000 Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. Israel is preparing for a larger effort, and a spokesperson for the Israeli Defense Forces has said that fighting will intensify. Hezbollah, an Iran-backed militant group in Lebanon at Israel's northern border, has been exchanging fire with Israel as well. In President Biden's remarks on Tuesday, he said 14 Americans were among those killed in Israel and 20 more are unaccounted for. Today, President Biden is meeting with Jewish community leaders at the White House. And that's after he held a private phone call with Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu. White House officials told NBC News that President Biden in that phone call urged PM Netanyahu to minimize civilian casualties in the Gaza Strip. Also in Washington, Congress is still leaderless, and the war in Israel has added more urgency to the House's efforts to replace Kevin McCarthy, who was ousted as Speaker over a week ago. 
On the corporate side of things, universities and CEOs are grappling with statements on the war and on the anti-Semitism that's escalated in the days after it began. But we'll get back to all this later. For now, let's get to Andrew and Becky and catch up on the strictly corporate headlines of the day. Andrew, we've got some breaking news this morning. It is now official, a deal that has been speculated about for months. ExxonMobil is buying Pioneer Natural Resources. This is going to be an all-stock transaction. Uh, the offering price, this is a $59.5 billion deal, which would be the largest purchase for ExxonMobil this century. This is the biggest purchase they've had since going back to the purchase of Mobil for about $75 billion back in 1998. It looks like this is a deal where, uh, in terms of the deal, Pioneer shareholders are going to be receiving 3.3234 shares of ExxonMobil for every Pioneer share. Again, an all-stock transaction, and they are valuing this based on the closing prices as of last week on Thursday, uh, the 6th of October. That's because uh, while rumors for this deal have been circulating around for months, going back to March and April, uh, things picked up again last Friday uh, when there were reports once again that this deal could be happening. And at that time, you did see the stock pick up, shares of uh, Pioneer Natural Resources. Taking a look right now at uh, what they say on this, they say that... uh, They think this deal will um, sharply help things, they think, from a U.S. energy security process. They're talking about Exxon bringing their own technologies to bear on this with Pioneer Natural Resources, which is by far the largest producer in the uh, Permian Basin. Together, the two of them are going to be even larger. Pioneer was already number one in in this basin. ExxonMobil was number five. So this is a big catapult from Exxon to really boost their uh, their Permian Basin. They've got 850,000 net acres from Pioneer combined with Exxon's own 570,000 net acres in the Delaware and Midland basis. And Andrew, part of the reason that they wanted this is because the land that the two of them own very close to each other. I think Darren Woods said this is like contiguous. It's just close to each other, which will make it more efficient for them in terms of deploying some of these things. Now, the question of how big it is could bring regulatory oversight. Um, This is clearly going to be the largest there, but Exxon going out of its way in this release this morning to talk about how they think that this will be an opportunity for even greater U.S. energy security by bringing the best technologies, operational excellence, and financial capability to an important source of domestic supply. Um, they do say that their technologies, they think they'll be able to get more out of the ground by this. They, companies will have a combined estimated 16 billion barrels of oil equivalent resource in the Permian. At the close, ExxonMobil would uh, have its production volume more than double to 1.3 million barrels of oil equivalent per day based on the 2023 volumes. And they expect that to grow by, to, to about 2 million uh, oil equivalent barrels per day by 2027. Um, a lot of questions that will be asked about this, but this does look like on a big bet from ExxonMobil that they don't think fossil fuels are going away anytime soon if you want to be this tied to the production of it. Interesting in the note that they say that this is accelerating their net zero in the Permian, meaning how much of this is, is driven by the, I don't want to say the optics of that piece of it, though, as well. Right. The, uh, accelerating, I think, Pioneers uh, right. net zero yep. from 2050 to 2035. It's, it's more Pioneers than I think Exxon's, but yeah, we'll see. In terms of bringing some of those things up. We're going to be joined by the CEO, uh, Exxon CEO Darren Woods and Pioneer CEO Scott Sheffield. We'll be talking a lot more about all of these transactions, but this is a huge deal and, and the one that very likely will kick off other companies scrambling to make sure that they have Permian Basin bets as well. The White House announcing sweeping new rules to crack down on 
what it's calling junk fees and promote competition among several industries and sectors, including banking, travel, leisure and housing. As part of this framework, the FTC looking to ban businesses from charging hidden and misleading fees. That would apply to things like resort fees, live event venue fees, car rentals and more. Those businesses would require to show customers the full price up front. The FTC would be empowered to secure refunds for consumers if the mandate is violated. The White House also taking aim at banks. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau will require large banks and credit unions to stop charging uh, fees for basic services, things like requesting your checking account balance or requesting loan payoff information. It's also proposing a requirement that the easy transfer of customers' banking transaction data uh, to competitors be a lot more of a simple process. This is a big deal. And you know what? For consumers, it's sort of hard to think how it's not a good thing. I'm sure there are folks on the other side, meaning some of the business leaders, who are saying, oh, my goodness, this is a whole other level of complication. And, you know, either we don't want to do it or we think it's going to impact our margins or whatnot. But how often have you tried to take a trip, seen the airfare, or th- seen what you think is the airfare, and then realize that it's, you know, like double? Right. And, and cable bills. Not finding out about these things. It's been, I, I mean, I remember reporting on the right. cable bills and the phone bills about this more than 20 years ago right. in the journal where yep. people were focusing on these things. Look, the only thing I would say, this is a, a good thing. I, I think it's hard to argue against. The biggest thing I would say, though, if they really wanted to do this, do this when it comes to health care costs. If you want consumers to really know what they're spending oh, on, I, like, that would be the point where amen. transparency would be the a- most important before you amen, worry about amen, a amen. plane ticket or any of these other issues that are small amounts of money versus the big, violent big agreement. Yeah. We're in violent agreement. <laughs> it would be nice if you could figure out how much you were right. going to pay for a scan or something else before you went in, if that was actually a competitive practice, too. Yes, I mean, we've would. actually talked about this in the past. Yes, it would. Yeah. Yes, it would. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I, I hope one day. We are watching shares of Novo Nordisk this morning after the Danish drug maker said it will stop a trial study of Ozempic to treat kidney failure in diabetes patients nearly a year ahead of schedule because it was so successful. That's the good news. Novo was testing whether Ozempic could delay progression of chronic kidney disease and lower the risk of death from kidney and heart problems. An independent data monitoring board overseeing the study recommended stopping the trial early because of the positive results. And Novo said it was clear from an interim analysis that the treatment would succeed. So uh, add this as another sort of, you know, good sign for these drugs. I think we've all... Miracle drugs? It is. That's what it increasingly seems like in so many ways. In so many ways. I know uh, there's people have rightly skepticism, worries about all sorts of things, but they haven't haven't shown up yet. It's... um Anything that seems too good to be true always worries me, but you're right. right. Uh, the number of things that these drugs could be useful for, the number of so, you know, uh, things that it curbs in terms both of... Both your... of us, you know, I think are natural skeptics. Yeah. So we're always a little worried <laughs> about these things. But I was going to say, I did talk to a doctor about a week ago who, um, not, not, about these, not, not about using these drugs, but, but he said, you know, Andrew, it could be that this is like antibiotics. When antibiotics first came out, People thought that was like a, a miracle drug, but they were worried because they, they thought, well, maybe there's some kind of long-term effect on some other side. And the truth is that antibiotics have been one of like the great blessings of our life, actually. Yeah, so and, and, and maybe that maybe so this will be it. like that. But look, there are long-term effects of antibiotics too. That they've created these superbugs, especially right. when antibiotics get used and abused and used too widely in right. livestock everywhere else that they're using it. No, no and, question. And, 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 but look, if it, if it's like antibiotics, fantastic. Right. That is a, a miracle that all of us have been so fortunate to have in our lives. It's just you look through it and it's like. Let's hope it's not Fen-Fen, right? right? Remember when that was the yep. miracle drug that was going to help yep. people lose weight, too. 
Let's bring an update right now on the trial against Sam Bankman-Fried. Yesterday, the jury heard testimony from Caroline Ellison, the former head of Bankman-Fried's crypto uh, hedge fund, uh, his former girlfriend and the government's star witness against him. She testified that she and Bankman-Fried defrauded customers, investors and lenders. She said that Sam directed me to commit these crimes. He directed us to take customer money to pay loans. There was an odd moment when she was asked by attorneys to identify the defendant. She stood up looked around the room for almost 30 seconds, scanned the jury box and the rest of the courtroom multiple times before finally identifying uh, him as sitting over there and wearing a suit. But um, a suit I don't know if you had an opportunity to read any of this stuff. It's, mm-hmm. it's just been fascinating to sort of see uh, all the different elements of what, uh, what Gary Wong said the other day in his testimony and now, and now Caroline. I think it's, I mean, we'll see if ultimately Sam testifies or, or what the defense argument is going to be, but it's a hard, I mean, we've been talking about it from the beginning. This is going to be a very hard case. Um, she, I guess she didn't see him, couldn't recognize him because, A, he's wearing a suit, which she right. never different did before. Haircut. Different haircut. I think he's lost weight yep. from the reports I've seen, too. Cheese will be next. Coming up next, the details of ExxonMobil's deal to buy rival Pioneer and how the near $60 billion merger makes Exxon the largest producer in the largest U.S. oil field. ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods and Pioneer CEO Scott Sheffield in their first interview on the deal. You look at the portfolio that we developed, our cost of supply is less than $35 a barrel. And Scott's got, again, a very lean and effective organization. They've driven their cost of supply down. So when you put those two together, that portfolio will be below $35 a barrel cost of supply. So it is a very competitive source of supply, which is good news, frankly, for the economy. Squawk Pod will be right back. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. That? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC Live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross along with Becky Quick. Joe is off today. ExxonMobil announcing that it has entered a definitive agreement to acquire Pioneer Natural Resources. The merger is an all-stock transaction that's valued at $59.5 billion or $253 a share based on Exxon's closing price last Friday. Joining us right now to break it all down in a first on CNBC interview is Pioneer Natural Resources CEO Scott Sheffield and Exxon CEO Darren Woods. And gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Becky. Good to see you. Thank you, Becky. I'm always talking with um, Jim, Brian and David. First time on your show. So, well, well, we welcome you to the program and we appreciate it. 
Um, gentlemen, this is a deal that has kind of been out there in the ether for a while. A lot of speculation about this, reports that this had been happening. In fact, Darren, we asked you about some of those reports back in April. And at the time, you said, uh, you know, you wouldn't believe too much of the rumor mill out there, that you had a lot of cash on hand, but that it wasn't burning a hole in your pocket. I think your point was you could do something, but it would have to be at the right price. What, what happened between then and now? How did this deal come together? Well, I, I think what we're talking about a deal, what we talked about is we have to find an opportunity where the combined entity offers more than any entity separately could do. So the uh, one plus one has to equal three equation. And so the challenge that we've been focused on and looking at opportunities is where can we bring the unique skills and capabilities that ExxonMobil has to bear with another company that has skills that complement that and then together create uh, industry leading value. And I think with this deal, we've been working hard in our own business to drive technology, to drive our approaches and improvements, and then finding an opportunity to, to partner with Scott's organization, their capabilities, bringing that in, their tier one acreage, our technology, our development approach, frankly brings um, higher, higher recovery at lower cost and the opportunity to reduce emissions. And I think that that kind of came around just r roughly the last few weeks as we were talking about the opportunity set. Hey, Scott, you are not just the CEO at Pioneer. You're also the founder. You came back uh, to run the company again, and a lot of people kind of speculated that maybe it would be you putting together a deal, um, kind of capping off a, a, a great run with this company and what you've done. Why, why ExxonMobil? Yeah, well, obviously, um, um, over the last 40, I've been here 45 years, Becky, and I've only had two offers for the company. First offers back in 1985 when the company sold um, for about four years. And then um, Darren approached me with an offer a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this is the best company uh, to take 100% stock um, in the world, in my opinion. What Darren has done with this company over the last um, few years, and turning it around, uh, they've outperformed all the majors across all indexes. Uh, they have great potential with the Permian now becoming the uh, lar largest Permian producer with Guyana, with uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, with all their downstream capability. It's really the best stock to own over the next several years. As the founder, you have an awful lot of, of stake in the company, stock in the company too. Are you going to keep the ExxonMobil shares or will you sell? No, definitely. Uh, I'm going to keep it. They have a great dividend, one of the highest dividends in the S&P 500. So I'm very excited about that. Hey, Darren, is this a, a bet that fossil fuels are here for the foreseeable future, that despite all this talk of people trying to transition completely off of it, this is a pretty major bet, the biggest deal that Exxon's done since it acquired Mobil back in, in, in the last century. Um, what, what does this say about your future um, and the future for fossil fuels? Well, I think as I've said uh, many times before in the past on your show, Becky, I think fossil fuels, as the, the world looks to transition and find lower sources of affordable energy with lower emissions, fossil fuels, oil and gas are going to continue to play a role over time. That may, may diminish with time. The rate of that is, is I think, um, not very clear at this stage, but it will be around for a long time. This is really around, this is betting on the capabilities, the people of our two organizations, the technologies that we've developed to basically more efficiently recover resources at a lower cost uh, and a better environmental footprint so that we are actually advancing the ambitions of a lower emissions future by driving down, using our combined capabilities to drive down emissions, produce uh, lower to carbon intensity uh, uh, 
uh, oil and gas and um, basically push continue to be the most responsible operator for providing oil and gas for as long as the world needs that. So it's it's more of a bet on our people and our capability and our technolo technologies than it is about the future of oil and gas. Hey, Darren, I'm hoping you can address the issue of regulators in all of this and, and how you think the Biden administration is going to react to this transaction. We've seen a number of big headline grabbing transactions, of course, uh, catch the ire uh, of this administration and the Department of Justice. Have you had conversations at all uh, with this administration? Well, I think, uh, Andrew, uh, you know, the context to look at this deal in is the size of the oil and gas industry. And so while we talk about this being a large uh, merger, a large transaction, when you look at it in the context of the overall oil markets and, and gas markets, even if you look at it in the context of the Permian production, together, while Scott and I will have a large large business together, it would still be less than 15% of the production coming out of the Permian. So I think from a scale standpoint, uh, we're still a small player in what is a very large market. So we don't anticipate any regulatory issues here. Uh, gentlemen, let's talk a little bit about what your production capabilities would be when you put this together. You mentioned 15%, Darren, but I, I think you also think that with your technologies, you're going to be able to get more out of these wells than, than, than otherwise. Is, is that the case? So the, the work we've been doing, and I've talked about, I think, quite a bit in the past, is challenging our technology organization to double the recovery rate. Today, if you look at unconventional resources, recovery rates, rates are fairly uh, low within the industry, given the challenges associated with, with fracking and extracting that resource out of the rock. We've made a lot of progress in that space, and we've got a lot, a lot more progress to come. There are a number of emerging technologies that we're trialing in the field that we think will continue to improve the recovery rate. We've got a lot of work we've been doing to reduce the cost of that recovery. And so we've got kind of a double uh, uh, double benefit here is a lower cost to, to drill and to complete the wells and then higher recovery. And so our expectation is with the tier one acreage, which frankly uh, is the best that Midland has to offer that Scott in Scott's portfolio, applying that technology to Scott's portfolio allows us to more effectively re recover resources, recover more resources, do it cheaper. And then, as I said, with the additional technology that we brought to bear around uh, monitoring methane emissions and the technology that we're bringing in, the scale that we've created with this and the ability to monitor centrally across all of our operations to make sure that we're focusing on the areas of emissions and reducing those brings that lower emissions footprint. So there's a lot of benefits to this. And, and a lot of it is based on the technology that we've been working on developing. And we today have separately as two companies, very similar uh, plans in terms of growing our production. This will potentially add to that, but it'll certainly lower the cost of it. Scott, are you gonna be sticking around to help with the transition at all? Um, I am still, Becky, I'm still retiring at the end of this year. I will be a director of Pioneer. Um, and then Exxon's part of the deal, uh, we'll, we'll be adding two directors and I'll be one of those directors. Okay. So I'm excited about um, joining the um, Exxon organization. Hey, Darren, um, part of what you all have said in this release is that you expect that you have a cost of supply of less than $35 a barrel from the Permian. Is that if the deal were to go through today or does that include all of these technologies and other things you've talked about? Because that is a pretty decent return on profit, especially when you look at oil where it's been recently. You know, that, that's where we're at today. If you look at the portfolio that we've developed, our cost of supply is less than $35 a barrel. And Scott's got, again, a very lean and effective organization. They've driven their cost of supply down. So when you put those two together, that portfolio will be below $35 a barrel cost of supply. So it is a very competitive 
uh, source of supply, which is good news, frankly, uh, for the economy, because as you know, it's a commodity market, supply and demand and marginal cost of production sets this market price as producers reduce their cost, uh, and then more and more producers reduce their cost, that, that translates directly into uh, a lower cost for consumers. And gentlemen, let me ask you both. I mean, we were looking at some pretty wild swings in WTI prices and oil prices in the days leading up to this transaction. Um, we looked at oil prices down $10, $10 in about 10 days. That was on concerns that the economy globally, there wouldn't be as much demand going around. Now we've seen things pick up again because of what's happening in the Middle East and the concern that supply will once again, again um, be, uh, be constrained with, with what's happening in the war there. Um, what would either both of you say just in terms of your expectation for oil prices what the israel hamas war means for things and what you're seeing globally in terms of demand darren you first well i would say uh, we know prices are going to move around i think we've been seeing that i think it's uh it's a it's a tough game to predict where prices and things are going to go i've said since the pandemic frankly that the industry has been leading into the pandemic was under investing the pandemic obviously drove that investment even even further. Uh, and we still haven't as an industry as a whole completely recovered. So I think from a, a supply standpoint, things remain fairly tight. And so as you see these disruptions on the margin, uh, you're gonna see the prices swing around because there's not a lot of excess capacity in the marketplace. But I would say more broadly stepping back from that, the real challenge that we have, I think, as a company and an industry is to make sure that we're developing these resources in a very low cost of supply. So irrespective of you know, what happens in the marketplace and, and the turbulence and volatility and the pricing, that uh, we have a competitive business and a business that generates return, returns even in the low part of the, of the cycle. And we built that business today. Scott's built that business with Pioneer and the combination of the two of us will have even a stronger business with lower cost of supply. So we're, we're basically indifferent to where those prices go, making sure that we can supply cost effectively, whatever the market conditions are. Scott, how about you? Yes, Becky, uh, on my last earnings call, I stated that I really thought Brent's going to trade in the 80 to $100 range. Uh, you know, Saudi has uh, reduced production a couple million barrels a day. They're really focused on keeping keeping that in that range. The effect of the war, interesting point, I was raised in Tehran, so uh, I've been following um, Iranian politics for a long time. Uh, and the big question is, is whether or not um, Iran is behind this and whether or not Iran enters the war. If Iran enters the war, uh, we're going to see much higher oil prices, obviously. Do you think, what do you think the odds are that Iran enters the war? I know that's a really tough question to figure out at this point. It's going to be up to uh, Netanyahu, I believe. Uh, so it depends on how much evidence he has that they're behind it and, uh, and whether or not he decides to do anything about it. Scott Sheffield, Darren Woods, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us this morning. And congratulations on this deal. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Becky. Next on Squawk Pod, how corporate America is responding to the Israel-Hamas war. CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, says they should speak up and sign his pledge. More than anything, it's we stand with our Jewish employees at a time when anti-Semitism has reached epic levels. What the ADL's pledge says and what the ADL recommends corporations do as the war's death toll continues to rise. In your training, like if you have DEI training, make sure anti-Semitism is addressed. That's it. We'll be right back. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, 
AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Squawk Pod, where we're taking a look at how corporate America and American educational institutions are responding to the Israel-Hamas war. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin with Becky Quick and our last guest of today's podcast. The rise in anti-Semitism this week following the surprise attack on Israel by Hamas has the Anti-Defamation League now calling on leaders of Fortune 500 companies and other corporations to sign a new workplace pledge and speak out against anti-Semitism. So far, corporations that have signed the pledge include Adidas, American Eagle, and many others. Joining us right now is Jonathan Greenblatt. He's the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Good morning. Good morning. Um, we've seen you, I don't want to say too many times this in the past couple of days, but we have yeah. now. And um, yeah. it's, it's a sign of where we are, unfortunately. But, but tell us about uh, where you are on this. Well, look, I think... One thing I would say, I think, for me, and I think for not just Jewish people, I think all people of good conscience, I don't think the world will ever be quite the same. So I think much like 9-11 was a shift, and I think a recognition, like an end of innocence, I think this is like that as well. Um, I think all of us are still, again, coping with the humanitarian crisis. You know, the loss of life is just horrible. Um, I would also say that what's interesting for me is like seeing the president speak yesterday so convincingly and so clearly about the evil of Hamas, about the, the, the total in, unspeakable horror that happened. Right. What's interesting is to see his clarity, his moral clarity, and then the lack of moral clarity in so many other spheres is, is right. hard to cope with. Okay, so you are now asking corporations to sign, a, to sign this pledge. To we sign, are. To sign this document. We are. Tell me what's happening behind the scenes as it relates to this. And, and just as a bit of context, yeah. there was a period of time in America, yeah. I would argue, after the business uh, roundtable signed yeah. uh, their pledge that business was more than just about profits, where yeah. you saw lots of different pledges, statements, yeah. comments that corporations made. Yeah. And in the last year... You've seen a lot of walking back, a lot of silence on a lot of different topics. Yeah. So I'm so curious sort of where things, you know, how this is playing out for you. Well, it's interesting. Like if we think about the importance of leaders leading, right, and the role that CEOs and other public figures play sort of in the popular culture. I'll tell you, as I think about corporate corporations, first I'll just mention universities because I think we saw at Harvard the total, utter, failure of leadership for days after the massacre. And the students who came out with this bizarre, bewildering right. piece, Yale, Yale University, the secretary and dean of academic life, put out a piece on the 9th which is truly ghastly. In the passive voice, we deplore the loss of life on all sides. Like, this was a massacre of civilians, and if Yale University, like Harvard, like so many right. others, can't speak clearly when they have in the past about, and appropriately, right. by the way, about Black Lives Matter and stopping Asian hate 
and climate and so many other issues. So then we come to corporations, right? What, what does the pledge say? What do you well, the pledge say? basically says a few simple things. More than anything, it's we stand with our Jewish employees at a time when anti-Semitism has reached epic levels. In the days after this massacre, the report from the Ministry of Interior in France says there were a thousand anti-Semitic incidents, one, zero, 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 in the two days after the attack. In England, a 300% increase right. since the attack. So the pledge simply says, number one, stand with your Jewish employees. Like, be willing to do that and publicly. So few CEOs have said anything. Jamie Dimon right. wrote an email. Um, Brian Anton Roberts, by the way, CEO of this company. Brian did too to his employees. Antonio Neri uh, put something up from HP on LinkedIn. And I think, um, who else did? Ed Bastian from Delta. But otherwise, lots of silence. Lots of silence. So we're asking, number one, speak out publicly and say, in the face of evil, it's wrong and I stand with my right. Jewish employees, number one. Number two, in your training, like if right. you have DEI training, make sure anti-Semitism is addressed. That's it. Because I know that most of these DEI programs, they don't include right. anti-Jewish hate. Mm -hmm. And then wait, the third thing, if you have an employee resource group, if you have an employee affinity group, make sure there's one for your Jewish employees if they want it. That's all. So I got to tell you, the bar is so low it should be easy for CEOs to get. Are people purpose. telling you no? Well, we're just unrolling it, rolling it out today. We've just been making quiet calls, so I wouldn't say that anyone's quote unquote saying no. John, but let's see how many say yes. Yeah. As I where's the camera? As I look into the camera and say, CEOs, if you are asking yourself, what should I do? Should I speak up? And by the way, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable. Other sort of big umbrella groups have spoken out, but you, if you're a CEO with Jewish investors and shareholders, with Jewish employees, with Jewish friends and family, this is as easy as it gets. Just stand with them. I've been a little shocked that there hasn't been more outspokenness on some of these issues because when you look at the images that are coming out of women being raped, of children being murdered, of the fires. But I will tell you, even in my own small world with this, on a mother's club list that I'm on, with only a few hundred moms, right. there's been a, a raging argument back and forth because one mom said, hey, let's uh, raise some money, call your congressman, do some things to reach yeah. out on this. Yeah. Not everybody in town agreed with that. And this is a very small group. And I, I think if you're getting resistance, that is why CEOs are going to be a, a little reluctant. Look, it's true, Becky. We are a divided country on so many levels. It feels like everything has become politicized. And you kind of alluded to it. DEI has become sort of an evil three-letter word in many places. We are at the World Economic Forum. Right. And I had executive after executive after executive saying to me, we don't use that word anymore. Like, right. I get it. Look, DEI, ESG, all of it. All of it is under a CSR. And most, of the, and most companies it. now would much prefer to make a statement through a broad coalition, like the, like the business roundtable, or, or the council, or the this or the that, because they don't want to stand up and be out there on their own. And well, so the question is, yeah. does that suffice? Is that, um, is, does that mean that these companies have no courage? Should, we, should you be calling them out? Should you not be calling like, What's the these right answer? Are, these things are always tricky, and I'd much rather work behind the scenes quietly than call people out publicly. Um, but I will say, and I also should say, I get why they want to, CEOs want to talk about 
you know, EPS, if you will, mm -hmm. right, not ESG. I, I understand that impulse too. But there are some issues that are political and that are some that are just moral. This isn't even right or wrong. This is good versus evil. So here's what I think we need to do, Becky, to the mother's group, yeah. to the university students. Right. You just need to say again, if you look at what happened, this doesn't require you to take position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This doesn't require you to take a position on Middle East politics. Saying that it's wrong to brutalize the elderly, to rape women, to murder parents in front of their children and then seize those kids as hostages? Come on, there is no world in which that's right. And I'll say something else about these students. Like if you think it is decolonization to gun down teenagers as they're at a peace concert. What do you say to Black Lives Matter? Look, I think, you know, it's interesting, the Black Lives Matter chapter in Chicago. And put in out LA. A, in LA, they put out these graphics that say we stand with Palestine, pictures of people on hang yep. gliders. It is hard to think of anything more sick right. and twisted. And, and right. I will but tell you- But you see, I just, want to, just yeah. want to say, one of the issues, and they're gonna kill me because we, we gotta go. We, we, but, but one of the issues here is that after George Floyd was yeah. murdered, yeah. and a lot of corporations came out and supported Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Right? And then, today, they look at that, and they disagree with that. They disagree with what they Black Lives Matter is saying today. Yeah. And they're questioning whether they should have supported it in the first place. I, because they think that things went too far. Yeah. And so this is the, the conversation that I'm hearing behind the scenes is, this, is if I come out and publicly say this is you know, what, what I believe and I support this, if then that becomes something else later, I'm not defending, by the way, I get you. I, I'm with I know, you, Andrew, as you know. You know I'm with you. I know you are. I know you are, Becky. I know this network and Brian Roberts and Comcast are too. So let me just say that. But I will say this, the appropriate analogy is not Black Lives Matter, which was a political movement. It is 9-11, which was a clarion call for moral leadership. Like, so when the CEO says, what, how do I put this into context? Again, this is not Black Lives Matter. This is not climate change. This is 9-11. And if these companies said after 9-11, right. we stand, we stand against Al-Qaeda, we stand with America, you need to stand with your Jewish employees right now because Hamas is not only Al-Qaeda, it is not only ISIS, it is a terror organization which threatens all of us. Really, I mean, this is the kind of moral question we rarely face in life. They happen at these points in history. And so to the CEOs, to these university presidents whose equivocation is really mind-boggling, this is Germany, this is America in the 1930s. And this is like what was happening in Nazi Germany. So ask yourself, CEO or university president, should you have stayed silent in the 30s? I don't know. I think it's pretty easy. I know you're asking corporate CEOs to, yeah. to sign on to this. University presidents as well? I want, yes, every university, if you have a DEI program and it doesn't include anti-Semitism, based on the standard, what we call the IRA definition, you're doing it wrong. If you're not standing with your Jewish students, you're doing it wrong. So they should go to ADL.org. They can email us at workplace at adl.org um, and speak up if there was ever a time. Right. To, and we've made it as easy as possible. There is no excuse to be right. silent in the face of evil. Last point, remember what Dr. King said. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but right. the silence of our friends.
Uh, it's a very important message. We blew through a commercial because this was that important. By the way, we got the commercial guys right over there watching us. That's it. Um, yeah. So thank you for coming thank this you. morning. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening from wherever you're based. We have listeners from as far away as Indonesia, and we're grateful to all of you for tuning in and catching your daily dose of business news right here on Squawk Pod. If you don't already, please follow us, turn on your notifications and your downloads. That way you'll never miss an episode and you can listen anytime. Of course, you can always watch Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin live on Squawk Pox weekday mornings on CNBC starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.